This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we discuss the middle section of Stephen King's 1977 horror novel, The Shining. Tony? This inhuman place makes human monsters? Oh, it's time to start the show? Oh, okay. What's up, man? <laughs> Tony, I got Tony over here. Yeah, I got voices <laughs> in my head now, too. I'm having premonitions and dreams and stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, I can't see him ever. He's just at the edge of my vision, just whispering things to me. You know, normal stuff like that. Yeah. Normal kid stuff. I'll grow out of it. <laughs> so, this... this reading has been really interesting because it's been like colliding with my life in weird ways. So really quickly, I wanted to talk to you about my experience that I had today. I was finishing our reading and uh, I was cleaning in the kitchen like very thoroughly. I had a lot of cleaning supplies around me and stuff. And I'm listening to the audiobook of The Shining and Jack Torrance starts thinking about crushing up Excedrin and using Excedrin. And uh, Mm -hmm. he like he gets high off that. Chewing and I started Excedrin, yeah. yeah, chewing it up and, and I started to get like lightheaded because of all the, the cleaning supplies and everything. So I was in like a really weird headspace during some of this reading <laughs> and, and I don't know, I feel like it almost kind of added to it. It wasn't was intentional, it the obviously. Supplies or was it the shining? Yeah. <laughs> was it was it was I in room two seventeen? Yeah, were you still in your crazy hotel? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're back in your apartment, but maybe it's haunted. You just didn't know maybe, it until now. Like they said in the book, it's like there are some hauntings that kind of that are with you, and there's some hauntings that are like in the hotel. So did they say that? You know, <laughs> well, Wendy, Wendy was worried that if they even if they left, that some stuff that's going on with Danny might uh, potentially follow him along. True enough. She not in those words, but they basically said that. Okay. Well, uh, so this is the middle section of The Shining. If it's not clear already by <laughs> by that, um, we're going to cover parts three and four. Uh, so if you want to follow along and then we're saving, I think it's just part five for, for, for this last week. It's like a yep. big section though, right? Very yeah. big. Yeah. It's, I think it's the yeah. size of three and four put together. Okay. So it's part five is going to be, is going to be next week, but this is part three and four, which covers a lot of plot ground. So there's a lot of great stuff to talk about in here, but yeah, so that's, that's what you're getting here. We're not going to do like any spoiler warnings. We're just going to get right into it. I think for sure. Yeah. So I, I want to know. Just in general, before before we get into the nitty gritties, um, just your your experience reading this book, like you know, you were very early on last time we talked, but I want to know now that you've gotten like a big part of it. What's it like? How does it compare to watching the movie? What's your what, what have you been enjoying it? I honestly have started to to really lean into Stephen King's thing about about it not being a faithful adaptation. Uh, yeah. the, the movie being not a faithful adaptation. So you can, you can start to see why now. Yeah, because it's like it. it um, the characters, although well portrayed in the movie, are a little less uh, deep. There's a little yeah. less going on there. And I think Jack Torrance is definitely more... Um, I think we talked about it last episode, but he's definitely more sympathetic as well as 
uh, more complex seeming. Yeah. Because in the in the movie, you, we just don't have to spend enough time with him to really get all of this depth. That's a good point. I, I I view him in the book as a lot more of a tragic figure. Like he is like a kind of a piece of shit, but you really get a sense that he's a piece of shit who really did want to change. Like that, like he he really wants to, and and it's impossible to to really define what is him and what is the hotel at times because those two learn two lines are so blurred, you know. Right, and there's a lot of like flipping back and forth, scene to scene. You're on Jack's side, and then something will happen, and you're just like, "Why are you acting like this?" And then he'll switch back to kind of being, and you're kind of seeing that struggle. Um, and I do want to say also the the difference that I'm noticing a lot is that this is. I feel like Kubrick went for more of a horror, like I know that this is a horror book, but Kubrick went for more of um, like a horror aesthetic. And this is kind of like, there's a little bit more layered into it, more of it being about alcoholism and like, like regrets and relationships and things like that. Rather than it being one person losing their mind, you're kind of questioning all the characters right now. Like it's like, yeah. is Danny really seeing what he's seeing? Is, is you know, Jack actually like self-inflicting all of these things that are happening to him or they're actually, you know, bad things happening because of circumstances. So there's a little bit more to the characters. Like, and we yeah. talked about it with, with Shelley Duvall's um, character in the, in the shining, her character, Wendy, I think her name's Wendy in the movie too, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So Wendy in the movie uh, is, it's a lot more screaming and, and running and being scared. And this is, this is a lot, not that, that. Yeah. Wendy is a very different character. Like, yeah, we, we, we mentioned it last time and she definitely seems stronger, like more protective. Although, I mean, you could say the movie version is protective too, but she just, yeah, I don't know. She stands up to Jack more. It feels like. Um, but yeah, just circling back around to Jack, I think it is a very, this is my second read through. And so I'm able to kind of really focus on certain things a little more. And I, and I really like how King blends what's going on inside Jack's mind to where I couldn't decide whether to blame him. Cause like you can either view him as a man who was on the, was on the edge, but was, was, was working to change who is being influenced by the actual hotel, not just like shown stuff, but like actually altering his state of mind and making him angry and making him lose his shit. Or you can view him as a man who is on the edge, who's being put in an extraordinary situation and then failing to rise above it. Like it's his own weakness causing it. And which way you fall on that, I think will will determine how much you blame Jack Torrance for what happens and how much you blame the hotel for what happens. Right. And right. and I, both are to blame, I think. But it's like how much what's the percentage you assign it, I think is an interesting question. And it's going to be very interpretive to how you read the book. Yeah. For me, I agree with you. And I think that it's definitely situational for me because there are a couple of times where I'm like, this is clearly a mistake. Um, and there are other times where it's like, what would you do in that situation if your wife and kid, you know what I mean? We'll, we'll get more into it. But if it's like something happened do you think that freaking them out and telling them the stuff that you saw is the right thing to do? Or do you think holding some stuff back and kind of protecting mm. them? I don't know. We'll see where yeah. we land on it. Yeah. I think, I think that's something to track as we go through the specifics of, of each of these scenes, which we are going to do that some here. So I think what I'll do is I'm going to read a little paragraph of summary and then we'll react. We'll basically give our reactions to that paragraph, like what that covers. And then we'll just progress through the book that way. That sounds good to you, man. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, let's get into it then. We got a lot of plot here. Uh, when we left Jack, they had just they had just um, 
Jack and the family had just had just gotten into the hotel and everybody had left, right? And they're there now alone. So when we next we see him, he's up on the roof doing some work where he's stung by wasps. While considering how to get off the roof to look for Bug Killer, he slips into a memory. He thinks about his abusive father, father and worries about his temper. He thinks about breaking Danny's arm and the incident with George Hatfield. After some time has passed, he goes down to get the Bug Killer, and then he kills the wasps and thinks that their nests will make a neat decoration for Danny's room. When Jack gives it to him later, Danny is elated. So let's talk a little bit about this wasp scene and the memory. I think the memory of George Hatfield is really is interesting because I think this is where we get it in full, right? Yes, we, we get his feelings on George too, which, which I felt like was really important to dig into because he feels bad for George because he has this stutter in this situation, but there's also, even though he says the opposite, I think there's a, there's a sort of jealousy towards his youth or towards his privilege because this kid yeah. is very well off and he's a, he's a like super athlete and great looking guy. Um, and he reminds him of himself when he was young. So it's kind of like jealous of those those glory days. I, I agree. I think that uh, Jack is an unreliable narrator when we're in his mind because he lies to himself all the time, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. And, well, and it, I, I, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's officially confirmed here, but I totally got the feeling that he did actually fuck with the timer. He, I think he, I think it's confirmed because he, said he like this... repeatedly says, "I wouldn't do that, but if I did it, I would have done it for this reason." And he exactly. like gives a solid reason for doing it, and that's in, the reason. So you're like, okay, he totally did it. <laughs> well, he's so unreliable because he says numerous wanna, wait, times. Do you want to explain what like what what the timer refers to in case people haven't right? Read that part? So so he's the head of a debate team. And the students are all a part of that. And he has a lot of great students. And this kid is really bright and he could do really well, but he has speech problems. Like he, he has trouble. He has, a, he has a stutter that only pops up while he's doing his debates. Right. Seems so like. whether it's nervous, whatever it is, he gets up mm-hmm. and eventually starts to stutter and loses it. Basically isn't as effective as some of his other students. And he, he even says like he's give, he's cutting this kid some slack because he thinks he has so much potential. And he's, he's, he would have cut him from the team if he was anybody else. But uh, he hasn't cut him yet. And there's a specific time that George is, is a part of a debate and, and there's a timer. They have a certain amount of time. And it ended, it ended sooner than George felt like it should have. And then he, he kind of went after Jack and was saying, you, 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 know, you messed with the timer. You made it sh- my time shorter. And basically, it, he adamantly de- denied that to the student, to George. And then uh, as time goes on, he's in his own head kind of thinking of how he, he knows he didn't touch it. He would never do that. But if he did... He would have only done it so to to kind of uh, give show him mercy to to kind of because the other students are sitting there watching him struggle and he's struggling and he knows he's not going to be able to get this his points out so it would be a mercy on his part of of giving him less time, right? So so yeah, I mean it becomes clear I think later that he did do it. <laughs> um, so then what happens is uh, George he later uh, Jack is out in the parking lot later that day and George he catches George uh, slitting his tires on his car. And slashing his tires, whatever. And he basically just flies into like a black fury where he doesn't even remember what happens. And then when he like kind of comes to, he's like pummeling George on the ground, basically. And they're pulling him off of him. And he's like almost killed this kid. Um, and, and what I thought was a really nice touch is uh, George um, has a knife. And he's like, if you come close to me, I'm going to cut you. And then he still goes into this black rage and we still see that he's like almost killed the kid. So I love that because it shows how dangerous he is and how like when he's in these rages, it doesn't matter if you have like a weapon or something like he's he's not going to stop. 
And so it shows how scary he is for setting up for later stuff. This was interesting because it's like, I understand getting upset as a teacher when a, a student is cutting, is slashing your tires, but you can't physically touch a yeah, kid. Yeah, you probably obviously. shouldn't nearly kill a kid. Over right, but and then it's like, that. it's like on the other <laughs> side of things, it's like if he was, you could totally see back in the day, a teacher, like a group of teachers saying, "Well, the student had a knife," and being on the teacher side, if a, t- but, if a student yeah. had a knife or something. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah, but that's not what happens. He ends up getting fired. <laughs> right, he's fired. <laughs> Something very important about this is that he was not intoxicated in any way. He right, was, he was sober. He was yeah. completely sober. And that right. is showing that it's not just the alcoholism. There's a certain rage well, in there. That reminds me of another thing I love about this scene, the scene up on the roof. Is he, There's a lot of him talking about being passive and being active and like all these things happening to him and how he's always felt like his entire life, all these stuff just happens to him and he has no control over it. And like the fact that he's an alcoholic is just like a like a cruel turn of fate because other people can drink and they don't become alcoholics, but for him he did. I loved that in this scene after it's like a, he's almost having like a moment where he's realizing that he's been so passive and that he's been shifting blame and he and he kind of resolves to say, "I'm going to take this on. I'm going to stop being so passive and and making everybody else out to be in you know the the." responsible for my problems and I'm going to take ownership of this and I it, it's so it's this is what I think is really interesting about the book because we see Jack like multiple times it seems like he's turning a corner and he's like he's making a new like a change and it's going to be for the better and then we'll see in the next scene him totally regress back to the shit that he just said he wasn't going to do anymore yeah I have I have basically what you said verbatim in another scene in my notes yeah. because it's like it's like he, he'll do something where you're like, he's turning over a new leaf, like he's going to be better this time. And then the next scene is the worst thing that he's ever said in the whole book so far yeah. or the worst. But thing the other part side of that. And, and so what I don't know is like, is that the hotel causing the backslide or is that his weakness? Because he this is also a pattern for him before he ever came to the hotel. And so it's so hard to know, you know, right? he clearly has the mental illness and that yeah. he other than alcoholism, other than the other things that he's dealing with, he he has something where he's he's actively thinking these things and sometimes he can't control himself and says it out loud, right? So we get his inner monologue about later on, his wife is just doing something. She's just asking him when he's going to be done or when he's going to do something. And he just go, flies off the handle. And in his head, he's just like, why don't you just fucking leave me alone? Da, 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 da. He says all this stuff in his head and then doesn't say it that time. So it's right. like he's clearly always dealing, like like he's always pr- like repressing these thoughts. Yeah, and I guess you can go back to that opening scene where he's having these judgments, right? You officious little prick and all that stuff to where mm-hmm. I feel like that maybe, that's just how he is. He right. is always that way. So that makes him less sympathetic. So it is kind of this back and forth of like, do you feel bad for him or is he a monster? And clearly he's somewhere in the middle, right? Like he's he is both a sympathetic character and a monster, and that's, you know, I think what makes him uh, an interesting character to this day and why people still find him interesting to read about. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think there's a, there's a perception of the movie especially uh, where a lot of people think it's a movie about a family with a psychotic father trying to murder them and, like, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, Well, I, will, I would say, I, and I don't think, I, by, by no means do I think that that's all the movie is about, but I would, I would say that the movie is more similar to that than, than yeah. the book is. It is yeah. more of a monster movie than 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 this book. Well, I think there's a lot less time is spent when Jack isn't like completely far gone. Yeah, I feel like I and now I'm not sure. I'm gonna be no, trying to pay attention for that when we watch it. But it feels like we get to the point of Jack being like as crazy as he is by the end of this. Maybe that I feel like that happens a lot sooner in the movie. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that I, I think that that happens later. But I do I do agree that 
he starts to go crazy much, much sooner. Yeah, well, I mean, Stephen King said that he thought from the get-go, he said, like, as soon as he saw Jack in the film, he was like, this guy's insane. So yeah. I think to him, it felt, I, I, I think he agrees. Like, he wanted to have more of an arc for it, whereas, no, I don't know if that's fair. I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Jack Nicholson, I think is the argument is that Jack Nicholson just looks insane. So yeah. even from the beginning, he's getting this vibe from the guy. But I don't know. I mean, I'll, something to pay attention to. Last thing I wanted to say about the scene is just that uh, the there's something very specific that happens. Wasp stings him, and he vows to get revenge on it. Like, he very specifically thinks they're all going to fucking die because they, they, they stung me. Yeah. So we see him being vengeful, right? And, exactly. And, so it's like yeah. everything everything that happens to him is just that it's happening to him. It's not like it's circumstance. Yeah. That undercut that undercuts the uh the, the like change he thought he had, right? Cuz right. then that's like a that's like a thought that he would always have had. It's no different. All right. So that night, Danny sees Tony and Red Rum while he's in the bathroom brushing his teeth. Wendy realizes he's been in the bathroom too long. She tries to go in but finds the door locked. On the verge of losing his temper because his writing has been interrupted, Jack forces the door open. Danny looks to be in some kind of trance, but his parents rouse him. They calm him down. Later that night, while Danny is having more visions of red rum, he feels something crawling on him. Wasps. He screams, and Jack and Wendy go to him. The wasp nest is totally swarming, and Jack can't understand it. He and Wendy calm Danny, and then Jack takes the nest outside after enclosing it in a glass dish. So yeah, this is this is another cool Stephen King thing where it's like, is it supernatural or is it not? You know, and it's it's it seems supernatural, and I, I think the implication is that it is. But there's just enough of like a maybe they were like like um, maybe the bug bomb didn't work as well, which is what Jack assumes. Maybe the bug bomb didn't work as well as it was supposed to, and they were just like zonked out in there, and then they woke up. Mm-hmm. But we definitely get the implication that it's that it is actually supernatural. But I like that there is a real world explanation to it too, right? Definitely. And there's there's too many wasps to, around the nest and on the nest than could ever have been in there, right? From from my reading of it, there's it's so like many. well, there's it's like, like as if it's as if it was completely like unharmed, like it's like a full nest of wasps. Basically, right. is the implication I got. And this is more of of Jack showing his rage because he, and this this one specifically, I th- I felt was was such a a great moment. Uh, I mean, in terms of the story, not morally but uh Uh jack runs in jack runs in and his son is coming out of that trance danny's coming out of the trance and he's stuttering a little bit and he he like grabs him and shakes him and and tells him not to stutter and like snaps at him and that's because that draws a line back to george with his stuttering and i think he's scared that his son would ever become anyone like george a little bit but i also wanted to know what you what else you got out of that yeah it's like it's like it's a really cool storytelling thing that king's doing there yeah i, I thought of it as kind of like a he's so like he, this is what he's been thinking about of late it just like comes to it like rears its head in this moment i don't know it's like he hasn't let it go yet so it's still there and then but then you could also view this as the influence of the hotel like making these connections i don't know it's it's mm-hmm. um it's really interesting and, and I agree. It's it's definitely worth noting. Oh, I, we should also say uh, later on he'll write a novel called It with a main character who stutters throughout. So did did you think about that at all? Did you think about uh, was it uh, Bill Dembro? Yeah, I actually didn't think about that, but that's a good point. That's got to be he's he has uh, at least an affinity for for stutters, right? In some I way. don't know. I, I I bet I bet he must have known he must have known a kid like growing up who stuttered, and it just like always stuck with him or something. 
Maybe, yeah. Um, but, I mean, King is also really good at finding, like, one little, one or two little details, like, um, almost like ticks to give characters. Yeah, I love the, the one that Jack has, the wiping the mouth. The wiping of the lips. Oh, my gosh. I find myself doing it sometimes after reading this book. Really? Did you ever did you ever catch yourself doing it? No, I don't think that. Maybe maybe something. Maybe there's another another one that he that he keys in on. No, it's weird. It's like I've actually caught myself doing it sometimes after reading it. And it's not like I like I've ever rubbed it raw or anything or like rubbed it with like a cloth. It's always just like I'll run a thumb along my lip or something. And I think it's like subconsciously when I've been reading this novel it gets in there. I don't know. It's wow. like something to do. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, maybe it's That's a, cool, man. I'm being possessed by the novel or something. That's scary. <laughs> But yeah, give it a try next time. Maybe it'll develop for you too. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna start the whole episode. I'm gonna be doing it now. Tell it whenever you off. have your next drink. Like that's when you do it because you do it after drinking. You like wipe yeah. the moisture off your lip. So what did you think about the fact that he was taking pictures of the of the nests and the and the wasps and the bites and and all that because he wanted to sue because he felt like it couldn't have been his fault. It's like he's it's it, Jack throughout this is so desperate to come up with a rationale for how this stuff is happening and make it like part of the real world. This is another just great example of it. Like, he's so mad, and and then also it's like another way for him to shirk blame, because he had told them it was safe repeatedly, like it's safe to have this thing. Yeah. And then and when it, it's proved to not be, he can't say like, "Oh, I was wrong." Instead, he's like, "We're gonna sue the fuck out of this bomb, this bug bomb, because I used it correctly and it should have killed them all," yeah. which like is a reasonable reaction to have, but also is very clearly like shifting blame away from himself. So Jack and Wendy take Danny to Dr. Edmonds, a psychiatrist and nearby Sidewinder. He examines Danny and determines that he's not epileptic. After talking to Danny about Tony, he tells Jack and Wendy that Tony is probably Danny's way of dealing with all the family's stress and with his discomfort over the recent move. Uh, so, yeah, this this interaction with the with the psychiatrist, I think, is also really interesting, right? Like, he, the psychiatrist says all these explanations for how Danny's uh, what seems like precognition is actually just him being really perceptive, right? And this mm-hmm. is almost kind of stuff we talked about in episode one. Definitely. Yeah, but uh, but of course, like, when you're reading it, you're like, this guy's so wrong. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's no belief in any way. It's all matter of fact because this is his field and he knows everything. So, like, But the whole I also time thought like, that, like, it seemed like he couldn't explain some of the shit that was happening even during the interview because he even asked Wendy, who was like, did you have a sister? Like, and, and he, like, questions him about the details that Danny provided. And he said yeah. that he was, she was thinking about it out in the... So I think even the doctor, even though he's saying all this stuff, I don't know that he really believes it. It's more just like that's the line that he's yeah. going to give. I love that Danny is, and this is such a great detail, is learning to read this whole time. And the like words are being shown to him. The reason he's so into trying to learn to read is because he's he's being shown things. And if he could just read them, he could comprehend what's going on and make more sense of some of his... Uh, some of his precognitions. Uh, so I, f- I just find that to be a really interesting detail that he's like, he's trying to learn how to read and he's learning at such a fast pace. He's reading like second grade novels and going beyond what normally he would be reading at that age just because it's like all the Tony stuff is pushing him along, it feels like. That's interesting. That brings up something that I was noticing with the way King writes and the way this novel is. We get a lot of Danny's POV. And when we're in Danny's POV, the language doesn't really change. And even though we do get stuff where he goes, uh, you know, why did so-and-so want to get into, you know, his pants? Like, that doesn't make sense. What does she want with his pants? So we get these kind of, like, childlike perspective things. But then we still get, like, really beautifully written, like, flowery language sometimes, um, which clearly isn't Danny's voice. 
So it's just impressive to me that King's walking a tightrope there where it still to me feels natural. And it's like, oh, clearly that's kind of the narrator's voice, Mm -hmm. even though we're in Danny's head. And so like that, that those two things are actually very tricky. And you could I, I don't know. Often people do them poorly. I will say that there are times that I feel like Danny is perceiving things and I understand that he can feel certain things, but he's able to put such a precise head on the way that certain things feel. That yeah. is way, way beyond his ears. And I, I find it to be, like you said, it might just be a narrator thing where he feels a certain way and the narrator's kind of upping that. Okay, so, so maybe it wasn't working quite as well for you. as, as it, Yeah, because I wasn't sure if it worked. I, I guess I was like um, kind of granting that this is a classic book that is beloved, so it, it clearly works. Mm-hmm. But I also think that in the, in the modern day, we have kind of moved away from that. We have moved more towards if you're in a kid's perspective, you should only get a kid's thoughts and you should only get perceptions and 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 like thoughts that make sense for that kid to have i would say also that because danny's not the main character because he is just a character it is interesting to think that king wants us to have a little bit more because of the way that the hotel is manipulating him and stuff too like i almost feel like yeah ultimately the pov is omniscient you know because i'm thinking about sections where the entire family runs inside and we get a moment outside and the wind's doing something and like you see something and there's another time later where wendy's looking for danny and he's actually up at the top of the stairs but she doesn't see him yeah and like so if she doesn't see him we shouldn't be getting that detail if we're we're truly limited so it's mm-hmm. like a, it's like a third person pov but it's not limited i guess right. is what it was is like the technical definition of it and that to me is difficult to do um, but I, th- I think he does it well. It's just um, I don't know that it, I, I feel like this style has fallen a little bit out of fashion. But um, that's just like a I don't know, very modern thing I guess is to to not write this way in general. Yeah. But I would it say that works, it, it, still, like it doesn't bother me. Right. I think it works for me as well. But I do think that it's worth bringing up just because it feels um, it's interesting because he also does kind of lampshade it by saying he's so intelligent for his age, he's so perceptive for his age, and a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how perceptive a five-year-old can be at some point. You know, I do like there was there. Speaking of another POV, whenever we're in Jack's POV, and there's times where he he says like this was like this, and he makes it into a metaphor. But then he's like, that's actually a shit metaphor. But it it does an okay job showing it, and he like critiques his own thoughts. Yeah, well, that's a writer, way, right? like a writer would. Yeah. yeah, so like that's one of the bonuses, and why a lot of people try and reach for like a writer protagonist, and why that's now a cliche. Um, it's because you can get away with stuff like that, and I think a lot of writers that is appealing to them. But then it can it can also feel kind of cheap. Yeah, but it's also like it's like um, Hollywood loves its own industry too. Like a lot of movies that are nominated for Oscars are about art or about crafting a film. If it's, if you right. make a movie about making a movie, it's and it's good, it'll be nominated. Like that's just like <laughs> a, a t- because because the people who are voting on it respond well to that because that's their lives. Yeah. Ten days later, while in the basement looking at the Overlook's papers, Jack finds a scrapbook detailing the Overlook's history between 1945 and 1967. It was once owned by a multimillionaire Horace Derwent. The first thing in the scrapbook is an invitation to the Overlook's 1945 grand opening masquerade ball. Jack learns that Derwent has organized crime connections. The hotel was a favorite spot for unorganized crime players. He begins thinking of writing a book about the Overlook. After some time, Wendy comes down to see what he's up to, and they begin to flirt. Okay, so mainly this is all about that that hotel history stuff, which I, it was definitely kind of cool, right? Like, is the, the connections to the mob? There's like a hit at one point that that left several people dead. We've already seen that reference with the like blood spatter on the wall. Um, yeah, what would you think? I, I I don't know. I mean, I think we get some of this history stuff in the movie, but it's probably I, I imagine it's a lot less detail. I think so. Yeah, 
I like this because it it gives more backstory to a lot of the haunting, well, seeming hauntings or or you know bad spirits or things that are around. Uh, and I think it is cool that it's not just you know the lady, the the lady in the tub, or like like the the family that was murdered. It's like there's more than that has happened. And then oh, also yeah. the idea that the hotel has gone through it's passed through so many hands, also kind of. And there might be some backdoor dealings going on with that. Well, and he was saying, like, there's a lot between the lines that isn't even on the page. Like, he's reading between the lines and going, what was actually happening here? And we know that this is all mob stuff. So it's like, what was what was happening that wasn't even being reported, right? And what is even yeah. being recorded in these scrapbooks? So uh, something interesting is that Danny, when he was in the doctor's office, he the doctor asked him to call Tony and see if he could get any visions or anything. And, and Danny saw his father finding this scrapbook. And he wanted his father to put it down. He didn't want his dad to go through it and open it. So it's almost like he had um, he had a moment where he knew that this was going to lead him down a dark path, like getting into this detail, getting obsessed with the stuff was going to be bad for him. Well, speaking about it, like I love how creepy it is that it's unknown whose scrapbook this is. Right. And and it's mysterious, right? And he's he's like, there's like little handwritten notes and stuff in there, and and, and he can't figure out like who would have left this thing and for what reason. So it makes yeah. it it makes it very mysterious and ominous, in my opinion. I, I love that. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention that's our podcast related. I think Danny okay. in the, in the doctor's office was reading a copy of Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you're right. I actually did write that down. So that was a cool little connection. I mean, that means that King must have been a fan of that book for his kids and realized the you know artistic value of it because that that's like a fantastic kids book and and uh, his name is Maurice Sendak. Sendek, he he's I mean, he he completely encompasses the kind of artist that I think a lot of other artists want to be. So I think that's a cool shout out by yeah by we you know, yeah and we did a whole episode on like a the movie that was made, the book itself, and then also a documentary about Maurice Sendek's life uh, or like the end of his life uh, that was really really cool. So um, yeah, I thought that was a nice little symmetry for our podcast for sure. So meanwhile, Danny is outside of room two seventeen. He has the pass key, and his curiosity is really strong, but he remembers promising Halloran to stay away from the room and ends up running away. That night, Wendy worries about Jack and Danny. She thinks something bad is happening to them at the hotel and decides that she'll ask Danny what he thinks the very next day. Danny knows his mother is worried. He's worried too, but he knows the Overlook is the last chance for his family and so is afraid to leave. He decides he'll ask Tony to show him how to stop Red Rum. The next day, on the way back to the Sidewinder library, Wendy asks Danny what he thinks. He's adamant about wanting to stay at the Overlook with Jack. So yeah, this was like a pretty tragic part, right? Yeah, this is a pretty large section. Uh, we got uh, outside of room 217, Danny was attacked by the fire hose, or he thinks that he was attacked by a fire hose. It, yeah. uh, it fell, and he felt like it was it was chasing after him, so... I mean, that, that starting out, that's kind of starting out the terror of room 217. And then uh, we also just went through Jack having the conversation with Ullman. He calls Ullman about all the all the stuff that he found in the scrapbook, and he kind of confronts him about it. And I felt like this was weird. And then later, it's explained that he didn't even understand why he called Ullman instead of calling the the uh, maintenance guy, who probably would have known more about the book anyway. Yeah, he's kind of out of control when he does that, right? Like it's this temper, this is completely flown off. And it's just because he doesn't like Ullman. Like, he just wanted to stick it to Ullman because he called him out. That does remind me, There was there's this thing where uh, Jack keeps repeating that he's, he, the words that he heard, that every every hotel's got a ghost. Why? Hell, people come and go. 
And, and, and this is another thing that we've talked about already, and I just want to continue to highlight it. It's a really cool technique, is the, the characters keep fixating on certain phrases and then repeating them to themselves, right? And, like, every time they say it, it's, like, either found some sort of new meaning or it informs the scene they're in in some way. Um, or it's, like, them reflecting on something. Um, it's really cool. Like, I, I'm – as a writer, I'm, like I'm, – I'm, every time I see something like this, I'm, like, ooh, I want to, like, have that in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to remember and, like, point out these things so I can remember to put them in my own writing in some fashion. There's a moment that sticks out to me where Jack – I can't remember specifically what it was because I didn't write it down. But he was – he was he went through, like, every sort of um, – Oh, I remember now. It was it was lost as marbles, and he, he goes through like every single type of phrase that that encompasses that idea of like losing your marbles, um, yeah, off of, off your rocker, like all of those things. And he rapid fires them in such a way it gives them more meaning because those are kind of cheesy things to say in individually, yeah. but like to have your your brain on such overdrive that you just completely think that you've lost your mind, and that's how you respawn. It just it seems kind of real. It seems like something that would actually happen. It also kind of gives it gives it like this real world thing where clearly this is something that happens so much we have all these different terms for it, you know. So like it's a there is a real situation where people just lose their shit and go insane, and this litany of of uh, phrases is an example of that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's, it's it's used to good effect for sure. So one more thing I wanted to say about this conversation with Ullman that he has. He doesn't know why he called Ullman, and he almost fe- he keeps talking about how he feels like he might be sabotaging himself at some points in his life, and he thinks like, did I want to get fired? Did I want to leave the hotel because I feel like something bad is going to happen? And I, that was a moment where I was like, he has. I think he has something. He doesn't have the shining, but he he's able to perceive something coming. And did you think that he actually did want to be fired? Something in the back of his mind was saying, like, if we can just get out of here, it would be better for us. Or do you think that that was just a little self-sabotage? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's probably a bit of both. Maybe there is some part of him that recognizes he's losing control. And so he thinks, if I can get myself fired, that'll get me out of the situation somewhere in like the back of his mind. But then it's also just, you know, an example of him being out of control. Right, it's his it's his temper getting the best of him. He just wants to y- yell at somebody. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's him behaving more erratically for sure. Oh yeah. So also that conversation between Wendy and Danny about she she kind of asks him, "Do you want to like leave? I'll take you to my mother's right now." And well, well, you know what I mean. We won't go back up there, and dad, you know, daddy will be okay. And Danny says, "No, I want us to get out. Like that's the only way we can we can make this work." And so ultimately, it comes down to Danny making the decision to stay otherwise they would have been able to the, like this could have ended now of course dramatically this, this wasn't going to actually end but it is an interesting like it, it creates another decision point where a decision has been made that continues to make this this disaster possible yeah and i think this is a turning point for wendy as well because she she's fully bought into the fact that danny has a, a gift she, yeah you're right she asks tony she asks she asks Danny to bring out Tony and ask him what he thinks is going to happen and if they should stay. And that's fully showing that she, she, she's like, he has something, he has a gift because he pulled out the fact that um, she was thinking about her sister in the waiting room of the, of the doctor's office. And he gave specific details about what she was talking about. And she was like, there is no way that he could, any sort of minute details could have led him to these conclusions unless he could read my mind. Yeah. And I like how it's like the, the doctor's, spiel like only just made her believe it more ultimately because it failed to explain 
you know, yeah. on a sufficient level, and it just sounded like bullshit to her. Yeah, so while Dan- Wendy and Danny are having this conversation, Jack is trimming the hedge animals near the Overlook's playground. When he takes a break from the playground, he thinks about the love he had for his abusive father. Then the hedge animals start moving and seem to threaten him. He gets pretty scared, but chalks the incident up to an hallucination. This definitely reminded me of... Um, has, has anybody ever, like, because I haven't watched Doctor Who, but I've had some people try to get me into it by showing me certain episodes. And one of the ones they showed me, I think it's called, like, Angels or something. And it's about these angels that move only when you look away. Yeah. Or Blink. On, it's called Blink. Me. It's called Blink, yeah. It's the 10th yeah, Doctor. Yeah. I can't believe I can't think of what the, what the episode's called right now. Or I think it's the, called uh, Blink. I think... No, what the angels are called. They're called um, something angels. I can't think of what they're Have you seen, right like, all of Doctor Who? I've seen, I, the only, I haven't seen all of Capaldi, but I've seen, you know, I've seen the 9th, 10th, and 11th all the way through. And I've seen some of Capaldi. So anyway, it reminded me of that. And, like, I wonder, because, like, th- that came later. So I wonder if, um, although, I don't know, it could have also been based off of the original Doctor Who, which was much older. I don't know the history enough. I wonder if that's, like, what, what idea predates, because that was very much like that to me. Like, it was only when he didn't look would they move, would the topiary animals move at him, towards him. I don't know for sure, because I, I'm not steeped in the original Who stuff as well, but I'm pretty sure that the angels are, um, like, a newer thing. They're from New Who, like, New Doc- Doctor Who. I think they mm-hmm. came in around the 10th Doctor. I think that was the... Yeah, f- so I wonder if, if, if they were inspired, but, I mean, like, 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 we've talked about, this is such a foundational novel for a lot of modern horror that it wouldn't shock me, you know? If like yeah. even if it wasn't de- deliberate, just like somewhere in there, the writers, some one of the writers had read this book and just always thought that was creepy. The the concept of mm-hmm. something only moving when you look away. Yeah, well, that's a, I mean that's a great episode to have seen, by the way. And it, uh, I just looked up Weeping Angels. I can't believe I couldn't think of it, but the Weeping Angels Weeping is what they're Angels? called. Because okay. yeah. they they have their hands in their in their face until you look away and then they'll move. Yeah. So how so how do these topiary creatures compare? I mean, I, yeah, I totally see that. The thing that got no, me, I mean, like, did you find them? Did you find them as creepy, less creepy? Like, how has the topiary creature uh, less creepy? You? I think less creepy, but same kind of thing. Because it's like okay. outdoors in the daylight. Um, I will say that they are pretty big. Is the thing topiary yeah. creatures could be pretty big? Well, speaking of, we get a, we get a very similar scene later with Danny mm-hmm. in, in the same area. I found this first time to be spookier, in my opinion, than the second time. And I don't know why. I think it's because I like the. It was kind of. It was kind of cool to see something affecting Jack for the first time. I think that's what's scarier. Yeah, because, that's because what made it scary. I think. I almost feel like, and this we we're not worried about spoilers, but Jack, uh, Jack's experience in room two two seventeen is scarier to me than than Danny's was. Really? Yeah. Okay. Now that I don't know if I agree with that. I'll tell but, you why uh, when we get there. Okay. Okay. Let's move on then. That night the snow begins. Over a week passes. The phones go out, but the radio still works. Things are peaceful, and Jack is getting deeper into the Overlook's files. Today, Danny decides to go back to room 217. This time, his curiosity is too much, and he goes into the room. In the bathtub, he finds the rotting corpse of a naked woman. He runs to the door, but can't get it open. The chapter ends with Danny feeling the corpse's hands on his neck. I just want to say this scene is legendary. Like This is a scene that I've seen brought out in class and read verbatim. Because it is like a clinic on how to write a horror scene. There's so many things that, that King does. These like progressive reveals. These like uh, the silence. Like Danny can't make noise. He's like choking during this. He's trying to scream, but it's inaudible. He the way he describes it, like all these like sensations he's having. I love the scream that that like he talks about a scream that he lets out that goes internally and screams yeah. like echoes through him, himself, but can't make yeah. any sound like. 
like externally was awesome. That was such a good. And moment. then him, and then he keeps reaching for like safety lines, and then they keep not getting pulled away. And and you know, like I'll look away and she'll be gone, but then she's there. And then and then they can't hurt. Obviously, the, the final at the very end where he says, you know, I'm gonna calm down. She can't hurt me. Dick Halloran told me that she can't touch me, she can't harm me, and then that's immediately proven wrong when he feels the hands on his throat. Like it's so, it's so that's so well crafted. Like if you want to be a horror writer, like go read this scene because it's incredible, and I think it really shows that there's a there is a true art to setting up a scene like this. Um, because in a lesser writer's hands, this could almost be silly or almost just be like a zombie scene or something, but instead it's incredibly creepy. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think this is, this is a, an iconic bit of, uh, Stephen King writing. Agreed. The, I just wanted to mention the payoff of how the Hallow Ren stuff and how we, we had the idea in our minds that he would look at whatever was there and then look away and look back and it would be gone. The moment where Danny's calming himself at the doorway, you can see a child doing that and the way that he calms himself and he has his eyes shut and he's he thinks, okay, this is my moment to, to get away from this. He said that they couldn't hurt me, so they can't hurt me. Um, and then that that reveal, the moment that the, the hands close around him. Uh, I mean, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it. It's it's so <laughs> creepy. And, and uh, the smell. I, I, we talk, I, well, I've it, talked it, to you it, about it like so many times on this podcast, I feel like. But the idea okay. of the smell is is like the last thing that gets him. She, he talks about how the the fish, it smells like fish as it closes around him. The, the, at, like the hands that are coming towards his, his neck, they smell like fish and they smell rotting. Um, yeah. and, and we talked about how powerful sen- like that sense is in writing. I just thought, I thought it was so great. Yeah, and I love how because when he shuts his eyes, it it enables King to really focus on the other senses. And so yeah, you get the smell, but then you also get the sound of her th- like thudding footsteps as mm-hmm. she's like coming over and all this stuff. I want to tell you so badly why I like the Jack scene. Let's hear, it, let's hear, it, let's let's just do it because we can okay. we'll pair these up. We'll pair these up. So let's compare it to this because the Jack scene is also very good. Like yeah. no no denying it. But it's it's kind of good because of this scene. Though. That's what I, I was going to say. Thing, like, it, well, that's it what I was going to say. Of this scene. Exactly. Okay, okay. It's because of it's because of the fact that this scene set this up, and we're getting the character who is sliding into madness and saw topiary creatures coming at him. But that's all that he's seen so far. Nothing that was imminently dangerous. Like it's the right. topiary creatures were, but it, it's a different kind of danger. Well, he was convinced that it was just a hallucination, right? Right, that and then had, yeah. Going into the scene, we he's he doesn't believe it, but he goes in and he's like, I'll check it out. Somebody's in here. And then we get two things that stand out to me. The he notices first the rug and then the smell of the soap. And yeah. then you know he's about to as leave. the reader, he's about to lead, you know as the reader that since those things popped up, something else is gonna pop up. So he's building yeah. so much dread. And we know it's this woman in the bath. And he, he well, opens and you the curtain. Hear this curtain sound, like shh. Well, he opened oh, yeah. the curtain. He had opened the curtain and was going to leave. And then he he heard it behind him after the smell. He heard it close and he looked back. Oh, my God, man. So that's the creepiest yeah. thing. And then the sound. And then he was too scared to actually open the curtain and look inside. Like right. he, just, he, just, he just runs away. So my favorite part of that scene. Now, sorry, you were going to say about the sound. Okay, go ahead. Go okay, ahead about so, the sound. so the sound. Well, the first thing is he he's running away, right? And he's yeah. like, the door's not going to be open. And he reaches for the door and it is open. And he has this like wave of relief. But as he gets through the doorway, he hears the thudding and the running of something coming mm-hmm. through. And he like, oh my God, the moment where he's thinking if he went and looked in the peephole, 
what would be on the other side. And dude, it's he'd be it's, eye to, what would he be eye to eye with? Yeah, that's exactly. such a great line. Yeah, no, that's that was my same part. Like it's so good. Like that is so creepy. That is that is brilliant. And yeah, and then and then the, he follows it up with that sort of like uh, betrayal after that, where he goes and just tells them nothing happened. Well, I love that that chapter was also like a minute long. Yeah, because it, it gives it all this weight, right? Like right. this is all that this is all this chapter is because it's so important. And I think the chapter was literally called like the reveal or something. Yeah, the chapter was called something crazy. But he so there's a moment where he's standing in the hall, and this is our character. This is our adult character that's supposed to be like protecting his family, and he's standing outside of the room with his eyes shut, just whimpering. And then he's convinced that when he opens his eyes, she's going to be sta- the the woman from the bath will be standing there in front of him, and he opens them, and she's not. But he can hear the he can hear the rattle of it of something turning the handle of the door, which is yeah. so so good. I yeah. love that scene. So we're, we're we're a little bit out of sorts here. There is some important stuff that happens like in between these scenes. So I'm going to get to that. This is this is going to be part four here. Uh, is what we're getting into. We've already kind of leaped across the divide a little bit, but before we really get into part four. I think we should stop. We've been we've been sharing some promos for some other podcasts that we've made friends with uh, since we've been doing this thing. So check out this promo and then go give them a listen if you're interested. Alan, people like stories. I don't know, Rob. Not according to our listener statistics. Ah, statistics lie, Alan. People love listening to stories. Or even better, listening to a pulp or vintage story with their best friend interrupting with jokes and other nonsense. I'm not sure I can commit to multiple additional best friends right now. Well, then it's a good thing we're already best friends who co-host a podcast just like that called Interrupted Tales. Every episode, we tell a complete story of romance, sci-fi, crime, adventure, sports, horror, all with added jokes, commentary, and nerdy references. You can get it on all major podcast platforms or go to interruptedtales.com. You know what, Rob? I've reconsidered, and I am open to new friendship opportunities. That's perfect timing, because now everybody knows they should listen to... Interrupted Tales. So part four begins with Jack and Wendy are outside while all this is happening with Danny. And Jack starts having memories of his father putting his mother into a hospital with his cane, smashing her head in front of him when he was a child. And he said, come on and take your medicine. Uh, we then learned that his his siblings were able to break it up so that the father didn't actually kill the mother. And then um, one of them went to Vietnam and got killed. And uh, it, we, it also sets up this relationship that Danny has with his abusive father. And he, I think you can see that he really is... is a, that Jack yeah, has. Jack, sorry, yeah, That Jack has. And you can see that Jack is like afraid of becoming this guy. Um, but also, he, I, I like that he had like a positive relationship despite all of this still. Well, it does. it seems familiar. Right. right. And man, just that scene, like this is one, another situation where King does this stuff so well. That scene mm-hmm. of the, the abusive father, man, like, uh, and we see this character pop up time and again in King's writing, in my opinion. Um, we, we, you know, there are characters just like this and it for sure. Um, these like piece of shit, abusive adult, you know, like father figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just him, him screaming you know telling saying take your medicine and all this stuff that which we know is something that jack keeps thinking like fixating on and then there's the the detail that really sells it yeah is the mother um saying like what, what i forget what she says she says like uh who has where's the newspaper your father wants to read the comics or something like right that. and then and then once which is horrible because that shows that it's a norm or that it's something yeah. that was expected 
and that she she felt like that was part of life, like that was something she had to go through. Um, and then when in the hospital, they they lie and say that she had fallen or something, and she corroborates it. And that's when yeah. basically the whole he family... He lies and says that, and then she she right. says, yeah, that's what happened. The whole family blows up after that. Some of the... some One brother goes to, like you said, Vietnam, I think, or just joins the army. Um, another one goes off to school somewhere, and, and that kind of that kind of was the, the last straw for them. And so that also, while all this is happening, there's a radio playing that uh, is the sound of... Jack's father talking to him, telling him to kill his family. He's like, "You got to kill him," and then he says, "Because a real artist must suffer." And I, That's... he says that a couple times, and I love, I love that because that is something that if you're a writer, you will hear this. This is a well-known thing people say, and it's such bullshit. And people use it to, to like forgive some of the most heinous shit. You know, people being like going through terrible divorces, people like suffering losses in their family, all this shit. People will look at it and go, "Well." He's an artist, so it's just gonna make his art better or their art better. And it's such bullshit. Like it's so it's so um poisonous, I think, to the artistic life to think that you have to just live in a constant state of depression and trauma to create, you know, well. And then that's why I see you'll see a lot of uh, writers posting kind of counter arguments about like when I'm upset, I actually don't I can't work. Like I can't write, I can't produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I wanna do is sit around and like, you know, wallow. And so that it's actually the opposite, where I need to be like in a good space to be able to create. Right. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting here that like his father's hitting him with this like well-known cliche that I think is just so poisonous. Yeah, I mean there are reasons. I think that there are reasons that it's a that it's like a stereotype. It's like a creative thing too. It's like it's like if you. If you're in a bad situation, you might be more motivated to get out of that bad situation. But it's not it's not to say that being in a bad situation all the time would make your art better. It's that maybe you have a fire under your ass or something like that that can that can motivate you at first or something like that. Because it does and I'm not trying to say that I believe in the stereotype. I just think that um maybe it maybe whenever it does happen, whenever someone is, you know, has a, a troubled past or something and they're able to use that it, it kind of maybe it's just that people people call that out more often than not you know maybe it's just that that people who who are happier and when they create things it's not, it's not so much written about or talked about but it does seem to be there's something to it i think no i get what you're saying i think i look at it this way like all every human being for you know maybe not bar none but 99% of us are going to have trauma and we're going to have tragedy in our lives and if you're a writer Sure. You probably use your art to try and like cope with that and like understand it and think about it. And that's not a problem to identify that that is a source of artistic, I don't know, like a wellspring of artistic, you know, fuel for people. Mm -hmm. But what I think it becomes poisonous is where people who are not, you know, creatives start to like almost wish it upon people. Yeah. Or like delight in it happening and saying like, oh, it's a good thing it happened to him. Now I'll give him something to write about. Yeah. And and like the, like we as an act like an everyday human who just goes through life, you're gonna have plenty of shit happen that you could write about. Like you don't need to have your you know spouse die or you know your children. You know like there's so many terrible things that I've seen people like go well. It'll give them something to write about. And like it's so awful when you see that. And so it's like I agree with that though. That that's completely that's completely toxic in my opinion. Like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and and truthfully, you know, and then you get like writers who you know creatives who kill themselves over this kind of shit, and then like you're not getting more art, like you know, so it's like, 
I don't know. It, it, mental health is such a like huge d- topic when it mm-hmm. comes to creative because there's a lot of writers who are also afraid to like address their own depression and take you know medicine for it and like um, they have like a like a chemical imbalance in their brain. They're afraid to address it, and then because they're afraid that they're going to lose their edge, right. their artistic edge, right? Mm-hmm. But then you also have people who will end up committing suicide, right? Because right. they didn't deal with issues they had and like literally lose their lives to this stuff. So it's a very complicated issue. And, and, and I feel like it could be like a whole episode of a podcast could yeah. just be talking about that. And we could bring on an expert or something. But <laughs> yeah, in general, I don't think that I think that you're right. I don't think that it, it holds much value uh, to say that like somebody who is doing well off and that they've, you know, say somebody has written five or six books and they're doing really well for themselves. It doesn't mean that they need to go through something bad to write another good book by any means. Because I guarantee you that person has has gone through bad things in their life. Exactly. And so, you like, the, like you can always write about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to. It's not this ongoing thing where you just, like, every day has to be terrible. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, because I think that's across all art. You see a lot of people who, like, shit on, you know, bands who get popular because they're too rich now and they have too cushy a lifestyle. And Yeah. Well, it's like it's like there are there there are people there are comedians who become they they become too famous for their own their own material, so they have to adapt. You know what yeah. I mean? They can't be the everyman anymore and also be a billion a millionaire. Well, and, and King's a really good example of this to look at because I mean at this point he was popular, but he wasn't you know what he is now. Um, so I would be really interested. I hope we cover some more of his later novels, you know, yeah. because um, I haven't read a lot of his more recent stuff, but I'm really interested because he, he is such a blue collar writer. Like he all of his main characters are these like blue collar working class people. But I mean, that is very far away from Stephen King. Stephen King is literally a billionaire right. with multiple house, like he has, you know, multiple mansions and shit like um, so. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting debate. And like, do, do do Stephen King fans feel like he still has his edge, you know? And if not, is it because it's not in the writing or is it more like because sometimes I think it's just a failing of the of the person who is like putting that perception onto it, you know, because they mm-hmm. know this about the person. Right. So they're failing to like give it a chance. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're they're kind of going in expecting it to be colored by the fact that they know that a billionaire is writing it or a billionaire is making this music or whatever it is, you know. Right. I don't know. A huge debate, but we, we got we got a lot more plot to get through. So let's get back into that. So he smashes the radio that his father's voice is coming through, which is like one of their only connections to the outside world. So when they, then they find Danny and he's in a bad state. He has bruises all over his neck. Wendy immediately suspects Jack and locks herself in the bedroom with Danny. Jack goes down to a bar and imagines having drinks in it. Soon, Wendy calls to him. Danny wakes up and tells his parents about the woman in 217, and Jack goes back to the room to check it out. Now, we, we've talked about this scene, so I'm going to skip a little bit down here. So he tells Danny and Wendy that there's nothing at all in the room. Later that night, Wendy begs Jack to take them to Sidewander on the snowmobile. She's very worried about Danny and wants him to see the doctor again. Jack agrees, but when he's in the equipment shed getting the snowmobile ready, he throws away a part it needs in order to run. So that covers a good bit of a, little, uh, of a plot here. But I wanted to, to back up to when they first find, first find Danny and how he's standing up there with his thumb in his mouth. I think it's such a great detail. And I love how this sets up. This happens multiple times where you immediately know Wendy's going to think that Jack did this. And you feel kind of like bad for him because he didn't do it. But like you also understand why, like, what else is she going to think happened? Right. 
Of right. course she's going to think he did it. But I so will... they're both they're like both right and both wrong mm-hmm. at the same time. My thing is that he he was in a situation where you feel bad for him, but then reacts the the wrong way. Of like, course, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he completely flies off and, and is so defensive and, and doesn't do anything to like prove Help his him. case really. Exactly. So it's like yeah. that's like maybe again that's the hotel influencing him to feel these ways, but but that's... it feels almost like the hotel has contrived this situation, right, to like right. turn them against each other. For sure, it feels well, that way. Yeah, and but the interesting thing is that it doesn't it doesn't continue to be that doesn't continue to be an argument because she believes Danny when when Danny tells her that it was a woman in room two seventeen, and he tells he basically comes out and tells them everything. Yeah, well, it actually, there's a moment where Jack is able to th- turn the tables on her because when when Danny first speaks, he says, it was her. And then Jack just looks at her like accusatory. But then I like how in the very next chapter, he's like, but I actually don't believe it because there's no way in hell she would never harm him. So he yeah. actually doesn't even, but he just like, lo- he loves the opportunity to kind of turn the tables on her and make her defensive for a moment. Well, that was, but that's a big deal too, because it's like, again, that's like revenge because she wrongfully yeah. accused him. He was like, I don't care that she didn't do it. The fact that I can turn this on her and like be hateful to her was a, was an opportunity he was looking forward to. But we also need to talk about the bar that he was at during this time period when she thinks that, that he hurt Danny and runs into the bedroom and locks them in there. I love how this is set up too because he's sitting down there and he's just kind of imagining it from of his own volition. Like he starts talking to Lloyd and I got a very strong sense that he was just making up a character. Like I'm just going to make up this bartender character and I'm going to talk to Lloyd. And he's kind of losing his shit a little bit obviously, but it, I don't think he's like full on hallucinating Lloyd. And in fact, the only hallucinations I think he's really getting is he can hear people in the booths behind him. And then but maybe he could also kind of see the martinis, which is definitely a hallucination. So I don't know. Like I love how this is so well blended between his imagining and kind of like dream state versus like like weird shit going on from the hotel. Yeah. I think that I mean it's great timing on King's part, but I think it's unfortunate for the characters that right when they are basically at a crossroads where they can all decide to fight against the hotel together because they know that something is going on, he he's too far gone. Jack is too far gone. He's lost it. He's he's gotten rid of parts that they need for the snowmobile. He is creating characters to to keep his sanity is what he thinks is going on, but it's yeah. clearly him him spiraling. And and then the way that he thinks about Danny and and Wendy from here on uh isn't great. Yeah, and I think uh now this I I think as we go progress through this maybe this will become even more apparent, but I always remember this story as a story about a hotel Using an existing framework of abuse and anger, but like turning turning Jack on his family, like manipulating him because the hotel actually wants him to kill the family. Mm-hmm. Like the hotel is almost sentient in that way, right? It's like this evil place and it wants him to do something. But I'm going to be curious to see how much of that is actually like what what is on the page because right so far it feels more like it's just like it's just feeding into his own shit like it's kind of giving him back what he wants almost right. that's what i felt like that that's what i think i was saying earlier with the the idea that he it's so much more about it's not as much a monster movie as as the film is i think it's so so much of this book so far we're two thirds of the way through it uh is just their own demons and the things that they're right. dealing with Yes, very true. And Jack specifically his demons and like his father is like his it's like the ghost of his father is like coming and telling him to like, you know, do what he did to his own family. Right. And that is a representative of so much of like his past and and his like darker urges. And uh, yeah, I agree. Like it's their own. 
I like the way you put that. It's their own demons that's like really haunting them. And and you know maybe the hotel's like facilitating that, but but still, uh, it's an, it's like a subtle difference I think. So while Jack and Wendy are upstairs, Danny decides to go play in the snowy playground. First, he encounters some kind of ghost while playing in a concrete wing uh, ring, and then hedge animals come to life and chase him. One of them even scratches his leg before he makes it to the porch. When Jack and Wendy get him calmed down, he tells them exactly what happened. Jack expresses disbelief. Danny realizes that Jack has seen the hedge animals too. The boy almost says so, but Jack slaps him. That night, the elevator starts moving on its own, and the Torrances find confetti, party favors, and a mask inside the car. All right, so that covers a lot. Um, we're getting towards the end of the of the of the summary here, um, but there's a lot to react to there. For for one, like I I've heaped a ton of praise on King for the the previous scenes. This is a scene that the first time I read the book didn't really work for me that well, and then again when I read it, I just it's fine. I just don't find it that creepy. The like elevator. The hedge animals chasing Danny. Oh, the hedge no, animals. the hedge animals okay. chasing Danny. I just I think it's because it's kind of already been done. Mm-hmm. And where it's like you get the call and you call and response between the Danny scene and the Jack scene. This is the reverse, right? It's Jack first and then Danny. Yeah. So there's a symmetry there. And like, I feel like on paper it should work, but maybe it's just the fact that they're hedge animals and I just can't quite find them that scary. Yeah, I find them to seem like, for some reason, and I don't know, it's, it doesn't really make much sense, but it's almost like a stuffed, a giant stuffed animal running at you or like yeah. something but I mean, that, like, that doesn't seem as scary as something tr- that could have but been. But if you put yourself in that scene and you saw a fucking hedge animal that you looked away and you looked back and it moved... It would freak you the fuck out. Like, there's no doubt. Right. Especially if they all start moving closer to you and, like, chasing you and shit. Like, but only when you look away. It would be scary as hell. There's no doubt. It's just something about the fact that we already got that scene. Yeah. And then I guess this version of it doesn't add a lot to it. It's kind of the same thing. Well, they all, they get um, him. They get scratched, right. I guess. They get him is the only difference. Whereas they didn't get Jack. But Well, they kind of get him. They don't, right. like, eat him or anything. No, no, no. <laughs> Which is also something um, interesting to bring up is, like, what were they really going to do had they surrounded him? I think I think they could have like torn them up with their branches and shit, but yeah. I don't know that they wanted to because it also seems like the hotel. I don't know. I you know we get a little taste of this later, but it feels like um, Danny's presence is also kind of activating the hotel and like yeah. lending it the ability to do some of this shit. And I think Wendy is picking up on that too. Wendy's thinking that, and that's why kind of she was. She, that's why she was. That's what I was talking about before. She's she was thinking that maybe it, it has something to do with Danny rather than it being the hotel that they're staying in. So even if they left, some of it might follow them. Something might yeah. follow them. But okay. Anyway, so um, yeah, the the him slapping. Uh, Danny is also like really hard. It's like it's like heartbreaking, but also like expected, right. I guess. Yeah. But it's heartbreaking because we repeatedly see Jack. It seems like Danny's the one thing. Like if it wasn't for Danny, like I, you know, I would be really worried for Wendy way sooner. Oh yeah. But Danny's the thing that keeps pulling him back. Mm-hmm. Like he, whenever he has a thought about Danny, he immediately feels really like guilty about it. Like oh, I can't. That's my boy. I can't think about him that way. And like, I don't know. He's the one. Like their connection's very strong. And then him slapping him is like the ultimate, it's like the, the transgression. And and I was actually kind of shocked that- Wendy didn't react um, more? That Wendy doesn't, yeah, kind of like hold it against him more. Because every other thing bes- before this, like she, I feel like she almost held the fact that he like screamed at him uh, and freaked out over him, him uh, not waking up. You know, or they're stuttering, the stuttering. Yeah. I felt like she was more worried about that than she was about him slapping him which seems weird. Yeah, and it was the um the hands around the throat thing. I think was like she really thought that he had done that. Which like sure that like he killed him. That yeah, would be yeah. very frightening. 
So that makes sense that she would be maybe maybe that's what it is. Like that was kind of, she already kind of crossed that bridge. So then when it happened again later in the slap, it was like not as big a deal. So is that like yeah. kind of the cycle of abuse that he's kind of touching on there? The idea yeah. that like things become normalized and like things don't affect you as much. Yeah. Oh, like and she was upset about it. Like yeah. she definitely was mad at him for it. And, you know, like you said, you'd never do this. And then he even says like he feels bad about it. He's like, oh, I can't believe I broke my promise and all that stuff. But we've seen this uh, from time into time from Jack again yeah. from Jack. So you kind of like at a certain point you start to roll your eyes. You're like, OK, sure. Yeah. You feel really bad about it. But next scene, you're going to be like yep. you're getting ready to kill somebody again. Yeah. So speaking of next scene is the elevator, which I think is is kind of creepy. And, and this is yeah. starts to go into like the lore, like the background of. I think of of the things that have happened in the hotel. Like, what is the hotel trying to do to them by like the party like is like popping up in Wendy's brain and stuff? And the yeah, this is the first time that we've seen Wendy actually see something supernatural, right? I think. Um, other than I guess she saw the wasps, and if they were supernatural, she was able to see them. Right. But like this is um, clearly not something that should be there and she well, sees it and she even grabs it and throws it at Jack and is like explain this is a you know a fuse or whatever it's like a fucking confetti in a hat yeah well um, it was the, it was the voices in her head too right she was saying that she yeah. thought she was going insane so like she's starting to become I think all of the characters are it's kind of interesting to think all of the characters are being affected it's not like it's like just Danny or just Jack Wendy also is a part of it so he also finds the roke mallet while he's out there looking at the snowmobile. And he thinks about like, bashing the snowmobile with it, but he ends up not doing it. And we keep we repeatedly get the roke mallet keeps coming up. Um, do you know where this is leading? Like, how, I don't know how much you know about the book. I, no, I mean, I... Th- no. But you've seen, I mean, he's had, Danny's had the premonitions about him smashing the wall with like a hammer. Like right, a, yeah. Like a mallet of some right. kind. Right, but so, they don't replace, they're not replacing the axe for for the mallet in the book, are they? Okay, I, mean, I, maybe I don't know. I won't, I won't say. Okay. I won't say. All right, so yeah, so that's interesting to note. Um, and then, so yeah, have you? Do you know what a rook mallet is? Like, because I actually Google it, because I'm like, what is it? Because they deliberately say it's not a croquet mallet, which is what I had been picturing. Right, I was picturing a croquet mallet, but then he kind of explained that one end, they're both rather than being similar on both ends, like a croquet mallet, one is flat and one is something different, right? Maybe the ones I was seeing online looked per- like pretty symmetrical, but maybe not. Um, it's the main thing I saw was that the head was like longer than I was expecting it to be. It was like, um, it was almost looked like shaped like a pickaxe, you know, that you would use for like mining, but it was a hammer that was or like, like a mallet that was just really long. Well, that, um, that, I think I, that's, yeah, I just looked it up. That's what I was expecting. That's what I was picturing okay. basically. Cause a croquet mallet is very similar. I, I know, I, I know what Roke looked like then. I didn't realize that I did, but that's what I was kind of picturing for some reason. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, so the last section we get here, uh, I think we just get into it, is is him is Danny like opening a clock and seeing like these figures kind of like doing lewd stuff and like doing like a dance and all this stuff, and then it kind of becomes a vision, and he sees a vision of their room in the Overlook, and he and like there's a limp hand that's dripping blood that is written on a mirror the word red rum. And then a clock appears, and he can see a date, and it says um, December 2nd is revealed, right, as the date of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. And then he can see in the reflection of, like, the glass on the clock what's in the mirror, and that's, like, a like a reversed word, and we get the reveal of red rum actually being the word murder. Murder. And then he kind of, like, makes the connection of murder and red rum in his mind. And, uh, and then like a black hole opens up from the clock and then he like wakes back up in the in the in the main room 
and he 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 calls Dick Halloran with all of his might, which like I and that's the end of part four, and I just know we're gonna cut to Dick Halloran and like what what he what he perceives. I just like expect that. Yeah. Um. I think I think I think I'm probably also remembering that that does happen, but um. Nice. It's it's like I'm I'm excited for that because I feel like it's cool. Um. But yeah, this is really interesting. And then uh yeah, the Red Rome reveal, which I mean obviously you already knew it because that's the thing in the movie too. Yeah. But. I wonder how many people, like, when you first read this book, like, if you just finally got that, I was like, oh, that's such a cool reveal. I never saw that. It yeah. is, like, the word in reverse and all this stuff. I was looking at covers for The Shining, and I don't know if this this cover... The original cover, dude, does not reveal anything. No, 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 no. The, that's what I was going to say, is that I don't know. I think this one probably came out after the movie did, but there's a cover that has Redrum written with one of the R's backwards, and... Um, if that if that's the case, I think that is the only hint that I think people that didn't hadn't seen the movie or knew the reveal. That's the only hint that I think was even laid out, and I don't know that that was laid out by by King in any of the, yeah. the like no, covers. The original cover is is very like it's just like a couple of like faces and like a, there's a hotel in the background and like you have no idea what this novel is about. <laughs> it's colorful too, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's bright. It's like bright. Very interesting. Yeah, definitely not what I would imagine for a typical horror novel cover. Maybe that like hadn't come to, to be the fashion yet. That was more of an 80s thing where you get these really iconic, you know, the Stranger Things obviously borrowing from that style for their for their uh, their like intros and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a very iconic period where you get these really cool horror novel covers, really evocative and and. This this shining original cover, at least I think, predates that because it does not look like uh, of a kind with those. Um, yeah. yeah, interesting stuff. So but... one more thing that I wanted to to talk about before we wrap here is okay. the um, I think Wendy hears something in those voices that are talking about like unmask, unmask the unmasking. Yeah, the mask of the Red Death. Right, and then and then I think in Danny, Danny also gets some unmask things uh, in his vision, the midnight stroke of midnight thing. Yeah. The red, the red death held sway over all. I would love to cover an Edgar Allan Poe thing. Yeah, like, I know there's been some movies and stuff made off of that, right? Like we got to mm-hmm. be able to find an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. We can. Yeah, do. I'm sure there are. The one that comes to mind is The Raven, and uh, pretty, pretty uh, wild movie. Oh yeah, that movie. I never yeah. saw that movie. I love that poem, but I never saw that movie. Yeah, I remember um, seeing the movie. Wait, but I mean, that's a poem, but like, he's got short stories and stuff that have been adapted. Like, I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe there's not, like, really famous, like, good adaptations, but I'm sure they've been made into yeah. something. Well, we need to cover it because it's Poe, right? And I think that, like, legends like that need to be talked about. And it also reminds me that uh, Jack Torrance calls him this, like, great American hack and all this stuff. And really? I think that's interesting because I feel like... Yeah, he does. He calls him hack and like wow. all this stuff. Like he he does has no respect for Poe. Huh. And I think I don't think that's true for King. And in fact, I think King identifies a lot with him. I think so too. That doesn't I I believe the novel begins with a Poe quote. Begins with a Poe like either poem yeah, or something I, short. I think you're right. So I think yeah. he's literally like saying like I love Poe and this is kind of like yeah. Well, and I think I think he. I think he's been called kind of a modern Poe. And now mm-hmm. he's very opposite because like Poe never got any recognition and died poor. Right. You know, whereas King obviously has, but he's, yeah, I mean, he's throughout his career been called a hack, been called lots of names because he writes horror. And it's this considered this like puerile, you know, uh, genre that is not respectable at all. And so he's always had to combat that perception. And so I like the idea that Jack Torrance is almost like a literary elitist who looks down on Poe because he's like a horror writer. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I thought that was fun. It's cool. 
I I uh I went through a, a Poe phase where I just read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. I had like a big book yeah. of of Poe. Like I got one too, dude. I got stuff. a big leather bound complete works of Edgar Allan Poe on my shelf. Yeah, and I, I haven't it. read it's any of his stuff book. in like a very long time. Like like got to be close to like ten years. We gotta do it, man. Yeah, request it. People people let us know what uh, what Edgar Allan Poe adaptation that you know about that we should do. I'd love to hear. So I have a kind of fun question that I want to ask you uh, about the hotel here, the Overlook Hotel. And and maybe even specifically room two seventeen, um, I okay. want to know if you one if you would stay in in the Overlook, and then also if you would stay in room seventeen two seventeen. But but specifically, how much money would it cost for you to stay in room two seventeen or in the Overlook Hotel? <laughs> okay, uh, all right. I have an answer for that. Do you want it now? No, give it give it to me at the end. Uh, at the very end, I have an answer okay. as well. Okay, yeah, because I'm curious to know what, what you would say about that as well. Uh, all right. So before that, we just wanted to say, uh, first off, we've been doing a lot of changes to our Patreon. If you look in the previous uh, thing on this feed is our is an episode called The Council of Inklings. It's not an episode. It's more of an announcement. Check that out for all the details. We go over, uh, we've changed our tiers a little bit, and we're introducing the Jukebox Hero option, which we're very excited about. So definitely check that out for more details. But uh, yeah, we wanted to thank our patrons, and uh, we specifically wanted to shout out a brand new patron we have named Cora S., and, you know, welcome to the council. We, we, we thank you for listening and hopefully you listen to this and, and you hear your shout out. Yeah. Thank you for supporting our podcast. We appreciate it. If you wanted to connect with Ink to Film, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And we're active on there. So send us anything that you find that's ink or film related. Yeah. Uh, also, if you would like to support the podcast in a way that doesn't cost any money at all, leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you can leave them on our Facebook page is great because it just helps to kind of give visibility and show people that like, hey, this is something I like. Come check it out. If you want to leave us any feedback, you can send that to inktofilm at gmail.com. And we also want to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Oh, and hey, I just wanted to say uh, on Wednesday I'm do- I'm doing this thing that I haven't done yet, and and uh, but by the time you get this episode, I will have done it. Um, and that's giving a presentation at OMSI on American Psycho, um, and I think I'm going to try and set up a way to do a live stream. So if you missed out on the live stream, if it happened, uh, check our Facebook because you might be able to watch it after the fact if you wanted to check that out. Um, if I was able to do it. So anyway, just be on the lookout for that. <laughs> okay, so but all right, hit me with that question. The again. question is, I want to hear it again. I guess first off, how much money would it take for you to stay in room 217? Okay, so I I have a follow-up question I have to know. Is it our world and there exists a hotel called the Overlook Hotel that is supposedly haunted and it has a room 217 and that's what I'm being asked? Or is it like I'm in the room from the novel and there's like a dead woman? Well, both, but I would say the one that's in the real world. (laughs) The one that's in the real world, I would say like... There is knowledge, there's rumors and knowledge of actual murders taking place and things like weird things going on. Like definitely like potentially haunted. Like I don't know how you feel about haunted okay. houses in So real if life. it's in the real world, personally, I don't care how many people have been murdered in a room, how haunted it's supposed to be, I would probably pay money to stay in it, honestly. And I may potentially because I am someone who would love to see a ghost. Um, now I get, I do get creeped out sometimes. And there have been times where like, I see a shadow in a room and I'm like, what the fuck was that? And like, I turn on the lights, you know, and like that shit does happen mm-hmm. to me. And it does, I'm not going to act like that. I don't ever get freaked out by the thought of like a ghost maybe being what I'm seeing. Um, but what I've never had is something that like truly convinces me. I've saw a ghost. I thought I did when I was a kid, which we could go into. It's a whole story. Um, I used to think that I had seen some ghosts, but I, in, in the fullness of time, I've sort of like rationalized all those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. 
No, it doesn't. And like, that's a good, that's a good point that Stephen King, I think, likes to make. But uh, yeah, I would love to just like see something undeniable. I think that that would be really powerful. Yeah. Now, have I'd you stayed, have, have you stayed in any, because there are haunted places you can stay. Have you stayed in any? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I recently stayed on the uh, Queen Mary when I was at uh, StokerCon, mm-hmm. which is like supposed to be a famously haunted uh, ship where like hundreds of people have died over the years. Um, and yeah, it's supposed to be like one of the most haunted places in America. And I, I totally stayed on that. Loved it. It was great. And didn't see any ghosts, but it was, it was Did fun. you get spooked out a little bit at any point? Did you feel like you maybe... No, no, I mean, there was a couple of times where like I was thinking about it. It was like late at night and I was going into the like bathroom. And like the, the rooms are like authentic, like, you know, like you're in you're in a ship room from like, from like the 1920s and it has that look mm-hmm. to it. And you'd hear like a creaking sound because you are kind of on the water, even though it's like docked, permanently docked. Um, so yeah, it was kind of creepy, but never... Never actually anything. It was more just like I was kind of like trying to like have fun with it and freak myself out yeah, a little bit. I totally get that. So I haven't stayed in any of those places. And to to answer the question as well, I would I would if it was in our world and it was supposedly haunted and people were murdered, I would like to go to that. I, I would like to stay there, and I probably would pay money to do it. But my thing my thing about it is that, uh, and maybe it's just because I watch so many horror movies. You have to be respectful. When you go to these places, right? Yeah. You can't go around fucking around, like like making a joke of it and like doing that because that's like that's the thing that I refuse to do. I will go to these places, but I will do it respectfully and like yeah. with with good intentions because I think that that's you know what I want to do. This make me. I've thought about this before, but this makes me want to do it. I want to take like a writing pilgrimage to a place like this and go with the intention of I'm gonna I'm gonna check into this room for however many days and I'm gonna write a sh- like a like a horror short story or that something would be awesome there. Dude. That's that's a great idea. I think that would be a cool like the inspiration of the being like kind of creeped out by this supposedly haunted place. Like I think that would all kind of play into it and might might create something pretty cool. Yeah, if you guys know of any like, especially in the Pacific Northwest, any areas where you can go and stay in like a haunted place, send them my way because I, I, I actually that would be kind of a fun thing to go do over a weekend or yeah. something. So, so I'd love to hear about. Okay, that. so the other part of the question: Would you, if it was the, this world, would you stay in it? Now it's like if if it's if this it was... world, you don't necessarily have all these details that Jack Torrance has and stuff. But like you, I mean, like I feel like it. in this world, I would be a character who would be like, "Prove me wrong. This is this is." I am a rational person and I don't believe in this. And then I'd probably be like killed. Yeah. I think so <laughs> I think I would do it, but I'd probably end up like strangled to death by the rotting corpse. Yeah. Woman. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think the adventurous side of me would say that even in this, in this story, I would probably be the person to check it out. But that just shows, man, we'd be in danger sure. in this shit. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right, man. I'm, I'm really excited to get to the end of this. I'm, I'm looking forward to this last part here. So, uh, but I think that's it for now. So uh, until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.